Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. Mr. Speaker, every day 20 Canadians die from toxic drug poisoning. Last May, Health Canada's expert task force on substance use published its report which clearly stated criminalizing people who use drugs is causing harm and needs to end. My question is simple. How many Canadians need to die before this government will listen to its own experts and support a health-based approach to substance use? That was NDP MP Gore John speaking in question period on May 13th. Johns has introduced a private member's bill, Bill C-216, that would decriminalize drug possession for personal use, create a process to expunge past drug convictions, and expand access to safe supplies, treatment, harm reduction, and recovery sites. For those of you who don't know, private members' bills are bills introduced by members of parliament who are not cabinet ministers. They usually don't become law. But right now, we have a minority government in Ottawa and a support agreement with the NDP, so who knows what will pass. There's going to be a vote on this bill on the second reading, in the House of Commons around June 1st. That's why we're talking about it. Drug policy has become a big conversation in Ottawa lately, and rightfully so. There are thousands of lives on the line every year. According to the Public Health Agency of Canada, there were over 26,000 apparent opioid toxicity deaths between January 2016 and September 2021. Now, the NDP aren't the only ones trying to address this crisis. The Liberals also have their own bill, Bill C-5, which would make changes to the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that would affect possession charges, among other things. So today I'm going to talk to someone who has been fighting for drug decriminalization for a long time to get his take on these measures. 
Garth Mullins is a member of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users and the host of Crackdown, the excellent podcast about the war on drugs in Canada. Hi, Garth. Thanks for being here. Hey, Fadma. Thanks for having me. So tell the people a little bit about yourself and how you're part of this conversation. Well, uh, my name's Garth Mullins. I'm coming to you from Vancouver, Musqueam, Squamish, and Slayotith Territory, and I'm an old-school dope fiend. I've used heroin for a big part of my life and some kind of opioid or another for really all of it, and uh, I'm on methadone now. Lived through two overdose crises. This is my second and the big HIV outbreak back in the day. And um, I guess I'm involved in this conversation because I'm part of a group called the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And I represent that group on a couple of different committees or or lobbying efforts to try and arm twist with government. And I've also been locked up for drugs. uh, And lots of people I know have been or have died from uh, prohibition. Uh, So uh, like I have kind of a a deep personal interest in this, I guess, as a drug user and an activist. Which makes you the perfect person for me to talk to because there's a vote coming up on this NDP private members bill. Can you tell me a little bit about what's at stake with this legislation? Well, I mean, we're in BC here, we're in the sixth year of an officially declared overdose crisis. You know, in the federal government's mandate, something like 20,000 people have died in Canada from toxic drugs. So, you know, it seems that somebody should do something about it. And the federal liberals seem disinclined to bother. So an MP from out here, Gord Johns, who's uh, in the NDP, has put forward this, um, you know, private members bill. And those things don't usually stand very much of a good chance of um, having a long life. You know, if you're the third party, and it's a private members bill, those things usually don't go. But Who knows? It's desperate times. It's a minority parliament. So this bill would amend the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which is the sort of like the source code of drug war prohibition in Canada. This is the act that's been around for a generation, and there have been many previous versions, that criminalize people for possessing or trafficking or just having drugs on them, having this big list of drugs. And so his bill would remove the section of the act – that criminalizes you for that, that can arrest you for simple possession. And you could apply to have your record expunged, and then it would um, try to make some uh, kinds of health measures to uh, to help out as well. The proposed changes this bill is making, is that what good policy should look like when it comes to drug uh, decriminalization? There's room for improvement. You know, I didn't have anything to do with drafting it, but I was very glad to see somebody step up and say, look, this Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, the part that criminalizes people for possession, that's got to go. You know, I agree with that. That's very good. I'd love to see automatic record expungement instead of there being a bureaucratic process for people to apply. I mean, there's just hundreds of thousands of people across Canada that have arrest records for drug possession. And we we got to have a, a big switch that they can pull in Ottawa that just deletes all those records instead of bureaucratically applying to get them done. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's a good step. I sure wish that the NDP as a party was more loudly trumpeting this and that you heard Jagmeet Singh talking about it more and that it felt like there was more muscle behind it, you know? This might be a dumb question, Garth, but how does decriminalization actually save lives? People are dying because 
of prohibition. The most dangerous thing about drugs is they're illegal. And so this is just like an alcohol prohibition times. You know, people would drink beer, then all alcohol became illegal. So immediately there's this economic incentive for bootleggers to make moonshine. You know, it's more easy to transport and sneak around behind the backs of the feds or whatever. And it's not regulated. So people started having to drink something that was much more potent for one thing. They didn't necessarily know the potency and people got sick and died off of that. Well, the same exact same thing is happening with drugs. So to the extent to which decriminalization takes a small piece of the drug war and stands it down, that's a step in the right direction. Decriminalization alone won't stop drugs from being toxic. All it does is makes the possession of those drugs no longer criminalized. But if we want to address the toxic drug supply, that's going to be another piece of policy. That really is about ending the prohibition of these substances, not just ceasing to arrest people who are possessing small amounts of them. You've mentioned uh, the liberals uh, a few times and, and just the, you know, the difficulty the political system is is having in, in creating good constructive legislation around this. I want to talk to you about Bill C-5. So this is an act to amend the Criminal Code and the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act that was proposed from the Liberal government that would do a number of things, right? It would include changing laws around drug possession cases to start. And it doesn't go as far as the NDP bill. What's your take on the Liberal approach? Well, Bill C-5 is about mandatory minimums. So it's trying to roll back a bunch of mandatory minimums. And these are um, artifacts from the Harper era where, you know, the sort of typical Tory conservative tough on crime, lock them up thing was was really going. <laughs> and so they applied these minimums. So, we, you know, we, we have judges in, in Canada and in all over the world who are supposed to be objective and just decide the right punishment that fits the crime. Well, Parliament leaned in and said no. We're going to give you minimums. You have to put people in jail for minimum of like two years if they're convicted of possession for the purposes of trafficking or something like that, which is a very, very broad and all-encompassing um, category. It doesn't just catch your uh, Pablo Escobar or whatever type high-level dealers, right? So like um, the Supreme Court even said, look, these are not right. You can't have these. So this bill to take away some of what Harper did – not all of it, uh, some of these mandatory minimums, um, it's really the Supreme Court uh, telling them what to do, in my view. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, I'm glad to see the back of mandatory minimums for drug-related offenses because, um, like, personally, my best friend, he's not, a, you know, a big high-level dealer. He's just a guy like me who uses opioids, and he sometimes uh, sells them on to friends to, um, you know, manage his own habit. Well, he got arrested for that, and the uh, prosecutors really went after him. They were looking for two years, and uh, he's not a healthy guy. He's a middle-aged guy who's been in the life in the drug war for a long time. I really worried he'd get sick and have a very bad experience if he went back to jail. You know, he'd mm -hmm. already spent enough of his life there. Uh, and so, you know, we stood up for him in court and filed uh, petitions and a glad do sentencing recommendations and all this sort of stuff, and luckily got him uh, conditions, but... Um, this is the stakes, right, is they want to lock up people who are just street level, just poor people trying to get by. Um, so, yes, definitely seeing the back of those is good. But is it decriminalization? No, uh, not by a long shot. So when the liberals tell you, oh, our Bill C-5 is us being kindhearted and decriminalizing, it's not. It's, it's the liberals following, I think, what the Supreme Court is telling them to do. 
What's also interesting to me because these drug offense cases disproportionately affect Indigenous and Black Canadians, mm-hmm. right? They're overrepresented in opiate-related deaths and incarcerations. Um, and I've seen a lot of writing about how the Liberal bill doesn't go far enough to tackle the racial disparities in opioid-related harms. Can you tell me a little bit about the concerns there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's because it's not real decriminalization, right? It's still mm-hmm. giving the police all the discretion to you know, arrest who they want. It's just that the judges don't have to sentence them for two years. And I mean, the police are are the enforcers of the drug war. They're why we have this disproportionately affected black and indigenous people in in jails and in the justice system in this country is because police all across the country are profiling people and over-policing these communities. So um, Bill C-5 doesn't get the police off the backs of people, and, and especially the people who are most targeted. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You know, throughout this conversation, I've heard you try to reframe like a drug user, right? Like, and and I think there's there is like this broad perception through legislation, especially of criminal behavior. And I noted that in Bill C-5, there's some language that's being proposed that problematic substance use should be addressed. And I'm quoting primarily as a health and social issue. Um, is there value to adding language like that and trying to reframe the perception of, of drugs? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because for a very long time, if you were a dope fiend or, you know, addicted or whatever, they just thought that's a moral failing and a criminal issue. And so uh, tough love and all that was what you should get. And then there was some movement to be like, no, it's because you have this mental disorder. You know, they call it a chronic relapsing brain condition, addiction, you know, opioid use disorder, I think is the polite word for it. And so they're saying, let's not let's not have criminal, let's have health. But then we can use the criminal justice system to sort of force you into mandatory treatment or do something else. But the truth is that most people who use drugs don't use them every day. Most people are just like casual recreational weekend warriors, people like me who are using them every day. I don't believe the fact of using drugs is a disorder. I may be using it um, to medicate for a disorder, for example, PTSD. But because you use insulin every day doesn't mean you have a health problem with insulin use. You may be using it to address diabetes or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's like a nice sounding turn of phrase, you know, like so many things in this Bill C-5 sound nice on the surface. So it's, you know, it's a health thing, not a criminal thing. And yeah, it's a step in the right direction. But I mean, we have to start growing up and have a having adult conversations about this, that lots and lots of people use drugs, lots of people use it recreationally. In fact, lots of people die from overdose who've just used once or twice, uh, who are just weekend warriors or whatever. So um, people use drugs for a lot of reasons. They can use them because they're wired like me, but people also use them because, you know, uh, it could be rational. They could be just trying to feel less pain on the job or also because drugs are fun. Like, let's <laughs> admit it, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Well, do you think politicians are, are just failing to recognize the broad spectrum of, of what a drug user could be? Is that what's, you know, the main thing that's limiting uh, us from achieving good drug policy? It's because drug users, we're not organized enough, right? Um, like there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, uh, a couple million of us in the country, I, I'm sure. And we're not organized nearly well enough. The group that I'm a part of, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, we have 3,000 members, and we just can't apply the pressure to decision makers that's necessary. If you want to change the world, uh, you can't just file some nice research with government and hope that their kind hearts will prevail and that a good benefit or reform will be handed down. You have to arm twist, right? Like nothing ever comes for free. And it's not just for drug users. It's for every piece of social reform that's probably ever happened. You know, like votes for women or the fact of the weekend or whatever it is, all of those things were like uh, women's movements, labor movements, all, all people fighting for that stuff, you know? So so like we're, we're no different. We have to organize and fight for it. They're not going to give it to us. And so we got to organize better. I want to ask you about something Carolyn Bennett, who's the Minister of Addictions and Mental Health, said when she was asked by NDP MP Gore Johns, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the writer of the bill that we're talking about, he asked her about a Health Canada task force that recommended decriminalization of simple possession during question period. And here's what she said. We recognize that problematic substance use is a health issue, and we too want to move it from the criminal justice system to the health systems, and we will. We are doing everything we can to invest in, in safe consumption sites, safer supply, and all of the alternatives that will eventually stop this terrible tragedy in Canada. She's really stealing a page from British Columbia. Since the last election, we have a new cabinet portfolio for mental health and addictions, and they got that idea from British Columbia. We did this here in 2017. And here and there, it's a ministry without very much power or budget, but uh, they like to say stuff like, we're doing everything we can, and give you a list of a few things. And then when you drill down into all of those things, you find out that in the details, really not that many people are able to access safe supplies. So that's an example of what she's talking about, where you could get, um, say, prescription heroin or, or fentanyl instead of, you know, doing the street stuff. Well, we don't really have that, even here in British Columbia, right? The ministers like to say, but there's a pilot program where a couple thousand people, you know, maybe two or three percent of all drug users can get access to it. Um, But the system doesn't want to do it. They haven't uh, funded it and given it enough political pressure. So so they're not very serious about it. The challenge for these ministers of addiction, whether it's provincially or federally, is to try and show the general voting public, don't worry, we're doing something. But really for Mm -hmm. people like me who have no choice but to take the time to read all this shit, you can see it's bullshit. They're not not doing it. They're just trying to uh, appear to be doing something. Well, it's such a complicated piece of policy, so it seems like they're almost tying it with a with a bow and in some gift wrap and saying, like, we got this. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, everything you're telling me suggests they don't got this. The difficulty is that every one of these reforms that they cite, we fought for through civil disobedience first. So going all the way back to the early 90s, needle distribution. There was world-leading rates of HIV transmission out here in this neighborhood in Vancouver. 
and it was because of scarcity of new syringes. So we fought for that, and people gave them away illegally. Healthcare workers stole new syringes from work to give to people. They they took risks. Mm-hmm. I got them. I, I my the very first new syringe I got was from someone willing to risk arrest to give it to me. Um, we got safe injection sites the same way. People like Ann Livingston out here worked with drug users to open illegal, um, unsanctioned safe injection sites to embarrass the government to do it. And now the Drug User Liberation Front is giving away to people, you know, known people in the community, uh, small amounts of tested heroin, meth, and coke, which they obtain from the dark web, test through a mass spectrometer so that we know what's in them, and then give them to people as proof of how simple it is to do something like this as an act of civil disobedience. And when we get up enough pressure, the government sometimes blinks and they'll open like a safe injection site or make a small pilot program so that maybe a couple thousand of the hundred thousand people who are addicted in British Columbia can get um, a little bit of access. And then they'll trumpet them forever to make it sound like they've solved the whole problem. But really, it's like we're on the street every day. We're burying friends every day. Last week was the last funeral I went to. So it's not true. It's it's almost policy forced by reaction as opposed to proactive policy, which is a problem that we, we see time and time again with, with government. And mm. in a space as complicated as this one, that's going to hurt more people than it's going to help people. Um, And speaking of complicated policy, Garth, tell me what S-56 exemption requests are, because I know that Edmonton is applying for one, and similar requests for that exemption are being considered by the Board of Health in the city of Hamilton in Ontario and the Board of Police Commissioners in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So, So what is it? Why does it matter? So Section 56 is a section under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. And we're looking for an exemption from the application of that act. And so there's a few that I'm aware of applications into Health Canada to say, for this place, for this community, please stand down the provision. So it's it's a form of decriminalization. Last year, the province of British Columbia in November sent in a letter to Health Canada asking for an exemption. Sometime before that, the city of Vancouver sent in a letter. You know, I sat on those committees kind of advising what we should be asking for, what we should be looking for. It's another way that people are trying to find a route out of police arresting people. So, I mean, it's pretty simple. The city of Toronto is now doing the same thing, and I assume there's there's other places soon to follow. But, you know, if you think about this bill, C-216, proposed by NDP MP Gord Johns, he's suggesting to amend the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act These little Section 56 requests ask for it to stand down for the purposes of criminalizing people. So you can see that people are kind of driving towards this source code of the drug war, this piece of legislation that just sits right in the middle, and it's what sends everyone to court and to jail and all that. I have not heard from Health Canada what they think of those things. We did hear um, the, the group I was telling you about, the Drug User Liberation Front, was asking the same thing, sent in a Section 56 request to say, hey, could we just please have an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act for this small group of drug users? And Health Canada said no to that. Did they offer a reasoning? Not that I've heard yet. So, uh, And they're allowed to just arbitrarily say no without offering a reasoning? I believe the reasons are still to come. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure. I, I mean, these are these are things that are all in the discretion of the Minister of, I guess, the Minister of Addictions or the Minister of Health. Got it. You said you you sat, you know, on the committees that drafted two of these exemption requests. Um, 
what are the considerations that they take? Like, do you, do you have a sense of, of how the government thinks when it comes to these kind of requests? Yeah, I mean, it's very it's a very fraught place, right? Because these are not spaces that that we set up as as drug users. I mean, the very first meeting about decriminalization I went to with other activists was in August of 1998. So we've been at this a long time. But mm-hmm. these like Johnny Come Latelys who are in government or whatever um, are now interested, and that's great. Uh, so they've set uh, these these kind of tables, and they always invite the police. And, of course, the police are the people who are arresting us. So asking police to sign on to decriminalize is a little bit like saying, hey, hey there's, a big, <laughs> there's a big budget line item uh, for arresting drug users that maybe we're going to um, be talking about today. So I feel like there's almost a conflict of interest. It's also just difficult um, to ask people who have been tormented by the cops their whole lives to sit down and, you know, y'all just like, let's have a nice, friendly, Canadian, polite meeting, la la la. But you know what? We suck it up. We go to those meetings. You know, I've attended a whole bunch of them. I got a a mandate from the board of directors of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users to go for the last year and a half. And so the considerations are about a bunch of things. Mostly that the police are there arguing that they want very, very low thresholds, which means they want people to be only in possession of a very small amount of drugs before they can arrest them. So like decriminalization would be like just a, just a little bit, you know, and um, I know Kevin Yake, who's the uh, vice president of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. He looked at one proposal for two and a half grams of everything, you know, all included, you could you could have 2.5 grams of, you know, coke meth or whatever on you cumulatively. And he said, well, I have that for breakfast. <laughs> and that might sound like a lot to people, but um, since the drugs have changed over the course of the last few years, since we moved from heroin to fentanyl and now new contaminants like benzodiazepines in the illegal drug supply, people use a lot more. Back in the day when I just used heroin, I could use... Twice a day, a hit could last me 12 hours. Not anymore. This stuff doesn't have legs. People are 8, 12 times a day. So it's people are just grinding and running to catch up. And they also have a lot more product on them. So we're there. One, this is one of the biggest considerations is we're there saying, look, modern drug decriminalization has got to take into account modern weights that people will be walking around with. And that's probably the biggest part of the fight that we have. Yeah, it's interesting because I think when people think of the word decriminalization – it's often associated with, well, there might be less barriers to using and then ultimately more people becoming dependent on substances or using them more. So you're saying that there are ways to consider that and change legislation to keep that in mind. It's pretty easy to get drugs, you know? (laughs) I mean, you can just order it on the internet. Like, it's not very hard. Um, It's been a long time since I was in high school, but even when I was in high school, it was easier to get drugs than to get someone to bootleg to the liquor store for you. So this idea that anything we could do could make it easier, it's kind of preposterous. Like it's just Mm. the horse has already left the barn, you know, (laughs) like like the (laughs) idea. Yeah, (laughs) right. So it's like this is also what I mean about really hoping that policymakers can have a grown up discussion about this because there are it is a real talking point. Like if we decriminalize, there'll be more drug users. There might be more drug users on the street because there's less in jail. But is that is the legality or illegality what drives uh, rates of drug use? I don't think so. There's nothing that shows that. So, Garth, let's go back to this NDP private members bill, right? What happens if it doesn't pass second reading? 
um, people like me won't be surprised. <laughs> that's that's one thing that will happen. Like, I don't see the NDP building up ahead of steam to get this through. Can we unpack that a little bit? Why isn't the NDP putting its full force behind it, do you think? Well, because no party claims us. You know, no party says we're the party that's going to look after drug users, you know, that that wants us to be associated with their brand, right? So, and, and that's also because maybe we haven't organized well enough, you know, like I know that the NDP spent a long time um, getting rid of words like socialism and, and direct connections to the labor movement, um, uh, structural connections to the labor movement out of it to try and appear more moderate and, and center, you know, in the political center. And that's really unfortunate because we need a proper old school left wing party to get in there and understand it's got solid connections with the working class, with with social movements like us, and to champion them uh, and not just crowd the mushy middle. Unfortunately, I don't think that's what the modern NDP is. I hope to be surprised. And of course, they can always change direction. And then when you see Jagmeet Singh, you know, talking about wealth disparity in Canada, you can feel the old NDP reaching out from back behind all those years. And I'm like, yes, this is the kind of politics that helps us get places, the kind of politics Mm -hmm. that it's a party that was built by labor and by movements of marginalized people. And the extent to which it remembers that and mobilizes people in those constituencies and people who want that kind of social justice, yeah, we might get it. But the extent to which people kind of remain silent because they're worried about what Ma and Pa maple syrup might think, well, fuck, you know, then we might not get it. But I mean, if this party cared more, I think it would have been part of the conversation between Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh when they were negotiating that confidence and supply agreement that they did uh, whenever, you know, back several months ago. But it's my understanding that that wasn't part of it, you know, so um, it's too bad for us. I would like all politicians of whatever party to really feel the fire and to think if I vote against this, I'm a real piece of shit, you know, so I want like from the liberal NDP, everybody Uh, the Tories to think that like, we'll remember who you are when this opportunity to actually take a little bit of this drug war apart, when this opportunity came past you and you just voted against it or used some Byzantine parliamentary process to kill it. We'll remember that. And I, I hope that people can find like a little bit of something in their hearts to vote for this and to campaign for their parliamentary colleagues to vote for it. And if I sound a little a little cynical, I'm sorry, but I've just, you know, I've been around this for a lot of decades now and I've lost, God, more than half of the people I came up with. And, uh, you know, I've also lived under a government in British Columbia, an NDP government for the last five years that's done pretty much fuck all to help us out. So I, I, I apologize. No, please don't apologize. I mean, that was definitely one of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever heard, The what you said about no party wanting drug users. Um, That's just a horrific feeling. I mean, nobody wants us. Nobody wants us, right? Like I admit about my past, but for most of my life, I just shut up about it because if I admit that I'm a drug user, I can get fired from my job or evicted from my house or, you know, lots of people's families. It kind of causes ostracization. Certainly nobody, never mind a political party that has to compete for votes, wants to claim us, right? We are like... I was going to ask, like, how do you go out and tell Canadians why, you know, these legislative 
these legislative changes or or just the impacts that these, this kind of legislation has matters and why they should be supporting it, amplifying the cause to their ministers and, and so forth? Well, I mean, ironically, I actually think that a lot of Canadians do support decriminalization and safe supply. It's just how do you make that the ballot box question or how does that rise to the top? Because lots of Canadians support daycare and pharmacare and dental coverage and doing something about climate change and have for <laughs> decades, but we've just stalled on all of those things or or made very recent and incremental progress. So like just because lots of Canadians support something doesn't mean that parliament is going to do anything about it. But when parliament does feel that a lot of people support something, they may want to appear to do something about it. And I think that's the stage we're in now is before politicians could just be like, fuck you, junkie. I don't want you near me. And mm. there was no problem. But now they have to cry crocodile tears. Now they have to be polite. Now they even use the polite word for us. There never used to be a polite word like people who use drugs. So now the Canadian politeness is in effect and you have to appear to care and appear to do about something. I'm sure there'll be a t-shirt day for us soon or something like that. But it's just like, <laughs> but the bodies are just still stacking up all while this is happening, you know? So What, uh, you don't have a flag yet, Garth? What are you talking about? <laughs> Well, listen, if there's a silver lining, at least it's we're talking about it more, right? Like that it's not in the shadows anymore. And, and, and maybe that'll keep the pressure on, even if it's for little changes until we get the big one. Absolutely. It's incredible that there's this space to have these kind of discussions. And I know that having a courageous discussion about something sounds like the smallest unit of change possible. But really, there was just no space. We were just like considered to be horrible pariahs for most of the time I've been alive. And like you're off the policy map, you're off of the polite, discussable map, and you just have to swallow all that shame and be quiet about yourself. So the fact of this space where I can talk like this and don't have to be all ashamed about it, I mean, it's just personally liberating, but it's also like the, the thing that might allow us to turn this around. Garth, it was a pleasure. Come back anytime. On that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. Look, we know Alberta went to hell this past week. We're going to be back with our panel next week to break down what the F is going on there, among other important things happening in Canadian politics. Stay tuned for that. Until then, please email us your concerns, rants, thoughts, questions. We're at backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work on the Narwhal. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Garth, check out his podcast, Crackdown. It's really, really good, and you will learn so much about the war on drugs. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Altshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. See you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.